Amen. Yes, we have a wonderful hope laid up for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that comforts us in all of our afflictions. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we will consider our hope as it's displayed there. 1 Thessalonians will be in chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 17, I'll actually read all the way through chapter 3, verse 5. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 17. Everybody there? Great. This is the Apostle Paul writing. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would use this time to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you use my words to establish and exhort all of us in our faith so that no one, especially someone in affliction, that none of us would be moved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I think most of you know, um, my family and I just moved here in October from Louisville, Kentucky. So we're still very new here, getting established. And let me first say that it has been just a wonderful blessing to be here. We love you guys. We love this church. Uh, we, We have come to enjoy this place so much. Even the city, we're really starting to, um, to, to just fall in love with all the things that we can do here. So it has been a great and very easy transition for us to come here to Albuquerque. But, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't sad, right? And there's nothing against you guys. It's just, it's just sad. Maybe you've been in that situation where you've had to move from one place to another. And, and it was kind of sad for everybody in my family in its own way. Um, One of the first weeks that we were here, I took my three-year-old daughter, Everett, uh, to go pick up some food from a Thai restaurant. She loves Thai food. And so we were driving to go get lunch, and she's in the back seat, and she says, Dad, are we going to the restaurant near our church? And it took me a minute to figure out what she was talking about, because this restaurant is very far away from Desert Springs. And then it dawned on me, oh, she's talking about the Thai restaurant in Louisville that we used to go to that was just down the street from our church. It was her favorite restaurant. 
And I, and I said, oh, no, baby, we don't, we don't live in Kentucky anymore. We live in New Mexico. We're going to a new restaurant. And I could tell as soon as I said that, that she got sad. And she just said, Dad, I want to go to the old restaurant. And, oh, I mean, don't you hate it when your kids are sad? It just breaks your heart. And then I had to explain to a three-year-old how her favorite restaurant is 1,500 miles away. <laughs> so I said, baby, we don't, we don't live in Kentucky anymore. We have a new restaurant and a new house and a new church and new friends. And as I'm explaining that to her, I'm getting sad. Because I'm thinking about all of the people that we have said goodbye to. And so me and Evie both are just sitting in the car, sad, (laughs) driving to this restaurant. And then after a few minutes, I said, baby, you know what? We still have the old God. She said, we do? And I said, yeah. No matter if we're in Kentucky or in New Mexico, no matter where we go, no matter what happens, we always have the same old God and he loves us and he is good to us and he cares for us and so we can we can put our hope in that old God and both of us both of our spirits were lifted just just thinking about that hope that we have in the old God and I love it for like a month after that she called God our old God (laughs) and she loves that restaurant now and she loves it here okay But this is the same hope that the Apostle Paul expresses in this text. Because if you remember, Paul has been separated from people that he dearly loved. And his situation is much worse because he and they are both being afflicted. They're undergoing suffering and opposition that would even tempt them away from their faith. But in the midst of that affliction and sadness, we see Paul setting his hope once again on that same old God. That God that has always been what he has always been and will always be, even until the very end, our only hope. And that's the theme of our text today. So we're going to consider this in three parts as you can see in your outline in the bulletin. We'll begin in verses 17 to 18 where we see the apostle's heart. So remember what has preceded this section in chapter 2, all right? Paul has been talking about this relationship that he has with this church. We saw in verses 7 through 12 where Paul says that he and his co-workers with him, Silas and Timothy, that they loved the Thessalonian church the same way that a mother or a father loves their children. In verse 8, he says that they are affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians and that the Thessalonians had become very dear to them. Okay, he's using this depth of language to express how much he loves them. But if you also remember what happened in Acts chapter 17 where Luke records the establishment of this church that after the apostles brought these these new believers into faith, they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. There were some unbelieving Jews in the city of Thessalonica that, that objected to that gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul was preaching. And so what they did was they they 
gathered together a crowd of unruly citizens in that city and they worked them up into a kind of riot. And, and then the city officials stepped in and forced the apostles out of the city of Thessalonica. They, they essentially chased them all the way to the city of Berea and then from there to the city of Athens. And so the apostles were, were forced to leave this church way before they were ready to. And you can just imagine how hard that would have been, how sad that would have been for, for Paul, not to mention how worrying because they had no way of communicating with this church. They had no way of knowing how this church was doing. And so if you look in verse 17, we don't really even have to imagine the, the, the depth of pain that the Apostle Paul is feeling. We see it in this word that he uses right here at the beginning, since we were torn away from you, brothers. That word in Greek, torn away, it means to be made an orphan. It's to be bereaved of a family member. So that gives you an idea of, of Paul's heart in this, what it felt like to be ripped away from the Thessalonians. It was like losing a child. He says, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, and we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. This is in keeping with the larger context of this letter where Paul has been giving up to this point something of a defense of his ministry. Probably because there were some people in Thessalonica that were beginning to doubt whether or not Paul really cared for them. Or maybe other people were spreading rumors about the Apostle Paul. Look, if he really loved you, why hasn't he come back? He knows you're going through this hardship. If he really cared, wouldn't he come? Wouldn't he come check on you? And Paul, and Paul is saying, we wanted to come. I promise, we love you so much. We are, we are so affectionately desirous of you that we have tried repeatedly to come and see you. What does he say in verse 18? Satan has hindered us. They were blocked, is what that word means. It's like somebody put up a roadblock. It was impossible for them to get back to Thessalonica. They were prevented from getting back to these people that they loved so much. And we want to ask, well, how are they hindered? What does that mean? We, we don't really know. The text doesn't give us many clues this could be a reference to the activity of those unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica that were, that were prohibiting the work of the apostles. In fact, in verse 16, a similar word is used. Okay? It says that they were hindered from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. And maybe what Paul means is that opposition that hindered them from speaking when they were in Thessalonica has continued, that there is still some way that these unbelieving Jews are preventing the apostles from returning. Or this could refer to the legal action that was taken in Acts chapter 17. If you remember from that account, the city rulers, the ruling powers, took one of the leaders of the church, a man named Jason, and they took money from him as a kind of injunction that said that if the apostles ever returned, it would come to great harm to the church. And so maybe Paul would love to return, but he knows that returning until that injunction is lifted would mean that damage would come to this tiny congregation and he feels hindered. Or maybe it's something else. We don't, we don't know. But who does Paul attribute all of that hindering work to? To Satan. I don't know if you noticed this, but our text today is actually bookended by references to Satan. 
Okay, we've got this in verse 18. He says that Satan hindered us. And then chapter three, verse five, Paul says that he was afraid that the tempter had tempted the Thessalonians. Okay, he calls Satan the tempter. It's like this satanic activity is casting a shadow over everything that has been happening up to this point. And it actually gives us a a helpful insight into the nature and the work of Satan as we look at this text. Do you remember Satan, the, the devil, the chief fallen angel, has always, always, since the, the beginning of human history, been the adversary of both God and God's people. In fact, that's what the name Satan means. It's a Hebrew word that means accuser or adversary. He is our greatest enemy. It was Satan in Genesis 3 that tempted Eve, and then through Eve, Adam, to move from their faith and obedience to God. It's Satan that's recorded in the book of Job who tries to work through Job's suffering and Job's affliction to get Job to turn away from his trust and faith in the righteous God. And even in the Gospels, it is Satan who tries to tempt Jesus himself to get Jesus to move from his faith in God. And we praise God that Jesus was not moved. Amen. But here in 1 Thessalonians, we see Satan doing the same thing that he has always done. He is working through affliction to try and tempt God's people away from their faith in God. We actually see in the text a few ways that Satan is working. We see, as I said in verse 16, that he's trying to hinder the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. I think it's right to attribute that work to Satan because Satan wants to keep the nations in darkness. He wants to keep the nations blind and deceived so that they would not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn from their idols to worship the one true and living God. We also see that Satan is trying to prevent the ongoing ministry of the gospel. Okay? He is trying to hinder the apostles from serving this church in the way that they feel like they need to. He's trying to keep this church from having good leaders that can grow them and guard them in the faith. And I think Satan still works especially this way today. That's why one of the best prayers that you can pray, especially if you're praying for another country and the gospel work there is to pray that God would give them good leaders that would guard them. That's why I'm so grateful for our church and even the commitment that our church has made to training leaders and other pastors. But lastly, we see that Satan is trying to use the persecution and the affliction that the Thessalonians are experiencing to tempt them to abandon their faith. It's kind of like the, the parable of the seeds with the seed that was, that was thrown on the rocky soil. You know, something grows up there, but then the sun scorches it. And Jesus says that, that is persecution, that that is opposition. And Satan is trying to use that scorching heat of opposition that the Thessalonians are experiencing to get them to abandon the gospel. So I wonder if there's anyone in this room that's experiencing that heat right now. That you are being persecuted. Maybe it's at your workplace. Maybe it's on your campus. Maybe it's in your own family. That there are people, because you believe the gospel, 
that are opposing you, that are afflicting you, that are, that are hurting you, and, and Satan is tempting you, saying, wouldn't it just be easier if you quit all this Jesus stuff? Then they'd leave you alone. You might even get ahead for once. Just quit. Or maybe if it's not persecution, maybe, like, maybe you're just acutely aware of Satan's activity and trying to hinder gospel growth. Maybe in your own life or maybe in the life of someone that you know or love. No matter how many times you share the gospel with them, it's just like it never gets through. It's like there's a block there. Or maybe just most, most broadly, maybe you are just in this room right now experiencing the same kind of grief, anxiety, the same sadness that the Apostle Paul is. Sadness that comes from being separated over long distances. Sadness that comes from loss. Sadness that comes from circumstances not going the way that you would want them to. Okay, you know trials and afflictions, they don't always come in the form of persecution, opposition. But Satan will use anything, won't he? He will use any kind of suffering. First Peter says that Satan prowls around like a, a roaring lion. He's just looking for an opportunity, something that he can sink his teeth into and get you to move away from the gospel. He will use any kind of suffering, any kind of affliction to do that. So whatever, whatever it is, and, and if you're not going through it right now, we know that you will. The question is, how are we supposed to endure when we are experiencing that kind of opposition, when we are experiencing that kind of suffering? How do we endure in a life of opposition? And the answer is the theme of this book of 1 Thessalonians. It's what Paul commends the Thessalonians for at the very beginning. In chapter 1, verse 3, their steadfastness of hope. Hope in what? In Christ's coming again. That is how we endure in this life of opposition as we steadfastly hope in the return of Jesus. If you've got this time, if you've got time this week, I would encourage you to read through the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. Okay? It's five very short chapters. You could probably do it in about 30 minutes. I think that would be a good discipline to just try and read through it every week at least once as we're studying it together as a church. And as you read through that, I'd encourage you, take note of something, that in every single chapter of this book, there is a reference to Jesus coming back. Every single chapter. Usually it comes at the end of the chapter. In chapter 1, Paul says that the Thessalonians have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven. At the end of chapter 3, Paul prays that God would establish the Thessalonians as blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In chapter 4, where the letter turns to the instruction portion of the letter, we get a very long discourse on the return of Jesus Christ in the day of the Lord that goes all the way into chapter 5. And then at the very end of chapter 5, Paul concludes with another prayer. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For a very long time, scholars have referred to the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Okay, there's two letters to the Thessalonians. Scholars have referred to both of those as the eschatological epistles. 
If you don't know that word, eschatological, it's from uh, the Greek word eschaton, which means last. So eschatology is the doctrine of the last things, or what we call today the end times. These letters, it seems like, show Paul's obsession with the end times. But not in a weird way, right? Like not in the way that that so many people are prone to today just out of vain interest or some kind of exciting intrigue. No, Paul is obsessed with the coming again of Jesus Christ in the end times because that is his only hope in a life of opposition. And that's the benefit to us of this book is it teaches us, one, what the doctrine of the end times is. We get a much broader understanding of what will happen when Christ returns because of these letters. But more importantly, it teaches us how to live our lives focused like Paul is on what will happen when Jesus comes back and to find hope in the midst of opposition. So that brings us to our next point, verses 19 and 20, the Christian's hope. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. In one way, these verses are just a continuation of the last point. They continue to show Paul's heart, how he feels about this church in Thessalonica. And it's just, it's just beautiful, right? It says that they are his glory and his joy. He calls them his crown of boasting. A crown is the victory wreath that would be given to a conquering general or to an athlete that has competed and won the first prize in an event. They would get a crown of of leaves, a wreath of leaves on their head that signified that they were triumphant. They were victorious. And Paul says that the Thessalonian church is his crown. They are his trophy. They are the proof of his faithfulness. They are the proof that he has run the race well. And Paul doesn't just use this language here, the Thessalonians. He says the very same thing about the Philippians. And so we can assume that Paul feels this way about all of the churches, all of the Christians that he has brought to faith and shepherded and discipled. It's a beautiful expression of the Christian ministry. And and as I've been studying these verses, I have been praying these verses for my own ministry and for all of the staff and the leaders at Desert Springs that, that we would value you all this much. And that you would be our crown of boasting. That you would prove our ministry to be faithful by walking according to the truth. And I think you can feel this same way about those whom you are evangelizing and those whom you are discipling. Parents, I think you should feel this way about your own children whom you share the gospel with. That they should be your crown of boasting. And you should feel this way about those people that you evangelize, those people that you meet with in discipleship, that they, you should value them like that, that they should all be your crown of boasting. But notice when they will be Paul's crown of boasting. What does it say? When Christ comes. It seems kind of odd, doesn't it, that Paul would say that the Thessalonians are his hope. Do you see that? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that it's ultimately about this Thessalonian church. 
It is about this church in relation to Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Revelation chapter 4 describes a beautiful vision of the leaders of the church gathering around Jesus' throne. And do you remember what it says? It says that all of these elders in the church, they take off their crowns and they cast them before the feet of Jesus. And they sing a song. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. It's not about the crown, it's about Jesus. Paul says the same thing, that he is affectionately desirous for this church. He wants to see them built up and established. He wants to see them faithful to the very end so that at the very end, when Jesus comes back, Paul can take that crown off of his head and lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, look at these Thessalonians. They have been faithful, these Thessalonians that you have saved and whom you have kept and whom you have given to me as some kind of stewardship to care for and to teach and to build up. Lord Jesus, look at these Thessalonians. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. It's beautiful, beautiful language. And before we move to our last point, I want to step back a little bit from, from this language and see a broader principle at work that's, that's for all of us in this text. Because these verses, one, do give us an insight into Paul's heart, but they also give us a glimpse of what's going on in his mind and how Paul thinks about and interprets his circumstances in this life. This shows us that Paul is always thinking eschatologically. Paul is always looking at his circumstances in light of the end times and what will be true when Christ comes back. Paul is thinking always about all of the different promises that are recorded in the Bible about what that very end time will be like. When, when like Revelation chapters 21 and 22 say, every trial will be taken away. Every source of suffering will be removed. Every tear will be wiped away. War will cease. There will no longer be any conflict. Everything will be made right. In the midst of persecution, Paul is thinking about a day when the church will no longer be persecuted. In the midst of satanic opposition, Paul is thinking about a day when Satan will be cast out forever. Paul is setting his hope on what will be revealed when Christ comes. And this book teaches us to do the same thing. As I said, that is one of the great benefits of this book is it trains our minds to think eschatologically. So this is a great question. When you are going through something difficult, when you are experiencing some kind of challenge, ask yourself, how should I think about this in light of Christ coming back? How should I think about this in light of Jesus coming again and making everything better? How does that change what I'm going through right now? When you're sad, that distance has taken you away from people that you love dearly in the Lord. And you're, and you're prone to be depressed about your loneliness and about these people that you don't get to see. Think about the day when we are all together again. 
when Revelation says that all of the saints from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will all come together and worship Jesus. Those people that you miss, you will be with again. When you're suffering under persecution, when people are being hostile to you because you believe the gospel, when they are opposing you because of your righteousness in Jesus Christ, you think about that day when Jesus comes back and he vindicates us. This is what we looked at last week, that that day will be a day of judgment against all of those who have displeased God, and they will suffer wrath. And we think about that day, and we think, I don't need to defend myself right now. God will defend me in that day. When we feel the weight of our own sin, when we know that we have displeased God, we think about that day when we will worship Jesus as the lamb who was slain. When we will feel the full effects of the gospel that though we displeased God and we deserved wrath, that Jesus suffered that wrath in our place and died the death that we deserved to die and was raised to live forever and we with him. And that day when Christ comes again and we are raised, we will know that our sins are forgiven even more. We will not sin anymore. We will be perfect. We will see him as he is. We will be like him. And so all of these struggles with sin that we have right now, we won't struggle with anymore. And that gives us hope today. Amen? That's our hope. I think this passage has something like a shape to it. It reminds me of, of a stormy sea. In verses 17 to 18, we have just this depth of waves. As the Apostle Paul is like a man in a little boat that goes down into sadness, into bereavement, into anxiety, into an awareness of Satan's activity. But then in verses 19 and 20, his little boat starts to crest the very highest wave, and he gets to the very top. And from the top of that wave, he can look out, and he sees the shore. He sees Jesus coming again. And that gives him hope. He knows it's still a ways off, but he knows it's there, and he knows that that's his destination. He knows that that's where he is going to be. He knows everything is going to be Okay, and so that vantage point from that, from that height gives him endurance. It gives him steadfastness as his little boat goes back down into chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. More sadness, more anxiety, more satanic opposition, but the same old God, the same hope. So we see this in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3, the church's hardship. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Now, this is obviously background narrative, okay? This is all stuff that happened before this letter was written. Remember, Paul and Timothy and Silas have been chased all the way down to Athens. They are in Athens, and Paul says, we, we couldn't take it any longer. We couldn't bear it any longer. He actually repeats that phrase twice in this passage. And so what do they do? They send Timothy, Paul's uh, protege, this, this very young, gifted minister of the gospel. They send him back to Thessalonica to 
check on them. And you might, you might wonder, well, how did Timothy get there if they were hindered? Again, we don't know, but you could, you could speculate that, uh, that Timothy's ministry when they were in Thessalonica was not as public as Paul's had been. So maybe he could sneak in. Nobody recognized who he was. Or also, Timothy, uh, the book of Acts tells us, is half Greek. So maybe he didn't stand out as a full Jew like the Apostle Paul did. So maybe he could, again, sneak his way back into Thessalonica. But regardless, they send him back. And not just to check on the church. What does it say? To exhort them. To encourage them so that they wouldn't be moved. Paul, Paul is sending back a shepherd to shepherd this flock like he knows that they need. But the, the point is that Paul did not want them to be moved by what? By these afflictions. Still in verse 3. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. It says you were destined for this. We kept on telling you this over and over again. That was part of our teaching. As we, as we study the rest of the Bible, it seems that this was always one of the aspects of the gospel that the Apostle Paul was quick to teach to this church, that, that they were destined for affliction because of the gospel. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says, or the, Luke writes about Paul, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So these are all other churches that Paul visited Iconium, Antioch, and again, he kept telling them, you are destined for affliction. Well, why, why does he keep saying that? It's no different than what Jesus said. Paul is just teaching them the things that Jesus taught him. Look at this in Matthew 10. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We don't always keep this part of Jesus' teaching in mind. We love the stuff about love, forgiveness. We even love the parts about Jesus being a wise counselor. But we don't like to focus so much on what Jesus said that you will suffer. But this is why Jesus says, count the costs before you come at, become a disciple. Before you take up the cross, before you take up the instrument of torture upon yourself. Jesus says that the servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me, they will hate you. And what does he say? You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The world does hate Jesus. Those that do not believe in Jesus hate Jesus. Why? Because the world is under the influence of Satan. 
And Satan hates Jesus. Satan hates the message of love. Satan hates the message of forgiveness. Satan even hates the message of Jesus' wise counsel. Satan, the accuser, the tempter, hates that message that your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ. He hates to see people turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. Satan hates God receiving glory. And so he works to cause people to hate us and oppose us for that gospel. But Jesus has overcome Satan. Jesus has overcome the world, he says in John. So everyone who endures through that suffering, through that hate, through that opposition, they will be saved. But there will be suffering, Christian. Verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul knows that only one of two things can happen to a church that is undergoing hardship. He knows that either they will abandon their faith and so prove to be no church at all, prove to be false converts, to prove to, to not really be elect of God, that they would listen to that temptation, they would listen to that voice that says it would be easier if we didn't hold on to this. And they would leave. They would abandon the gospel, and that's why Paul says that their work would have been in vain. They would not have been a true church. He knows that either that will happen or that they will have been found to be genuine and that they would have held fast in steadfastness of hope to that faith in the coming of Jesus Christ, that they would have been proven to be his crown of glory and even be strengthened in the midst of that affliction. And, and look, this is, this is a bit mysterious, okay? I think one of the reasons that the text says that we are destined for affliction is for this very purpose that God uses this according to his good and sovereign plans to test Christians, to expose whether or not they are true Christians. It's not the only reason that we go through affliction in this life, but, but did you see that it says they're destined for affliction? Satan doesn't destine anything. God destines this. And so when we ask, well, why would God allow Satan to afflict this church? I think it is for this purpose of testing. And, and we can get confused with that word test because for us that means some kind of performance. Okay, the, the piece of paper is put in front of you and you have to do your best to try and pass or fail. But that's not really what, what the idea of testing means in the Bible. It's more like testing to see what is already there. Testing to see if this is genuine or not, okay? So it doesn't have to do with our performance. It has to do with, with just what we really are. The apostle Peter says as much in, in his epistle. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Or again, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that Peter is saying the exact same thing that Paul is saying, which is the exact same thing that Jesus was saying? Did you see that Peter even has an eschatological view as he is considering the trials, that this all culminates in the glory that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ? But what does he say? Don't be surprised when trials come. We are destined for affliction, and it tests us the way a fire does. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but um, my background is actually in the visual arts. So I went to art school. My wife and I met in art school. And uh, as part of that experience and that training, I've tried my hand a few times at ceramics, right? Making, making pots out of, out of clay. I am not good at it. I love the part where you've got the big lump of clay and it's on the spinning wheel and you get to shape it and you get to make it into all kinds of neat designs. But that's only step one of the art of ceramics, okay? If, if I just took up a, a bowl made of wet clay and gave it to you to eat your cereal out of, that would not be pleasant. No, once you've formed the pot in the wet clay, you have to fire it. You have to put it in a kiln, a big oven. And the fire in that kiln gets upwards of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. This is extreme heat. And it's that firing process that exposes whether or not you are a good ceramicist. What happens if you have not made that pot well, if there are imperfections in that clay that you have not removed, if there are air bubbles that get trapped in that clay, if you make the walls of that pot too thin or too thick, when you put it in the kiln and the fire gets roaring, the temperature gets up, that pot is going to shatter. But if you are a good ceramicist, you have made that pot well and you put it in the fire, something incredible happens. As the heat gets turned up, that, that clay pot gets harder. It gets stronger. And then it comes out of that firing process and it's actually useful. This is what trial and affliction are for the Christian. If you're not really a Christian, if you're just here and you think, you know what, this, this Jesus stuff is... It's pretty fun, and I like, the, I like the music, and I feel really good about myself after I come on Sunday mornings, and it's a great place to meet people. If that's what you're here for, as soon as that heat starts getting turned up, as soon as you actually start experiencing trials, you're going to shatter. That will prove that you are not really a Christian, and that's actually a grace to you as much as it is to us. But if you are really a Christian, if you have truly put your hope in Jesus Christ and the Lord by his sovereign will allows trials and afflictions to come your way, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get stronger. You're going to become more useful. How? I think one of the ways is that that trial and that affliction, that suffering, when it comes, it just makes that hope and the day of Jesus Christ all the more 
clear. When you are suffering so much to the point that your only relief is the thought of Jesus coming back and making everything better, that strengthens you. That forges in you steadfastness of hope. And the Apostle Paul knows that only one of those two things can happen to a Christian. And he knows that the Thessalonians are enduring persecution. He knows that they're going through hardship. And so, so he says, I can't stand it anymore. I have to know. When you're, when you're making a pot, that's the hardest part. So you put it in the kiln and then it gets going and you, and you can't interrupt it. You just have to let the fire burn. You have to wait until the process has happened. And then finally at the end, you open up the door and you look in and you, and you see, in my case, how bad a ceramicist I am. But Paul says, that's it. I can't, I can't wait any longer. I have to know. I have to know how they're doing. And so he sends Timothy. He sends Timothy to go open the door of the kiln in Thessalonica and see what has happened to this church. Are they going to shatter? Are they going to be tempted away? Are they going to be moved? Or are they going to hold fast? And I wish I could tell you our verse ends in verse 5 today, so we can't. No. I wouldn't do that to you. Verse 6. Spoilers. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us, what? Good news. The good news of your faith. They're there. Timothy came back. He said, Paul, they're there. In fact, they're stronger. They're holding fast in the hope. They're waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven. And they're enduring their hardship. Have you noticed as we've been going through this, this letter is just overflowing with thankfulness. Is it any wonder? They're there. Paul is relieved and he praises God. God, thank you for keeping this church steadfast in their hope in the day of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what is your hope? Are you one of those that when affliction comes, and it will come, you're going to shatter? Have you not yet come to appreciate the hope that is laid up for us in the coming of Jesus Christ? And if you have, and right now you are going through something hard, I pray that God would even use this time as a reminder of what your hope really is. That you would not look to the left or the right, you would not be moved, but you would think even more about what awaits us when Jesus comes back, what our destination is. And may you be strengthened, and may you be made more useful until that day when your pastors take off that crown and they lay it at Jesus' feet and say, praise God for, for your work in them. Let's pray to that end. Lord, would you use your word this time to cause hope for the first time? Would you cause people to turn from idols to worship the living and the true God, the lamb that was slain that has suffered the wrath that they deserve for their sins? Lord, would you please give them that hope? And for those of us that do have that hope, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you cause us to be steadfast and immovable in that faith? Lord, would you give us a better understanding of what that hope is 
what it'll look like when you come back and how that applies in so many different ways to our circumstances now. God, would you please strengthen our church to your glory? Because, Lord, to you alone belong glory and honor and power. Amen.